You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. Tonight's reading is from the gospel according to John, chapter 1, verse 1 through 5. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the light, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we are thankful for your word. We are thankful for revealing yourself to us through your word and through your son. Might we now, this evening, as we open your book, might we see you more clearly, might we see Christ more clearly, we pray in his name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, have you ever had something in your life that you were really looking forward to, but just had to wait for it, and wait, and wait, after... Texas played USC last week, tragically losing. Uh, I was reminded of the nearly six weeks that I had to wait, like 11 years ago, after the end of the season, all the way to the national championship, like anticipation building. And I was just like a random student. I can't imagine the kind of anticipation that builds and builds for the actual players. Maybe it was your senior year of high school. Some of you seniors now here the end of those nine months never would seem to come. Maybe it's that for college for you seniors this year. Perhaps it was a six-month engagement where the wedding seemed to never come, or the nine months of pregnancy, or the even more months of waiting for an adoption. The payoff, the event will be incredible, but the waiting can be excruciating, especially as expectation builds. And that's kind of what I felt like over the past 20 weeks of Genesis. Each week had incredible payoff of its own, but it was always building towards something. It's always looking forward. Each week we saw the Messiah and his coming kingdom in Genesis. We saw the gospel of Christ splayed across the pages of scripture and through the centuries, but it was moving forward. It was a rolling snowball getting bigger and bigger and gaining momentum. Well, after taking a two-week break, the last two weeks to think through the biblical foundation of our church structure. I'm so excited to see that snowball finally explode on Christ, to find its fulfillment. The gospel according to John, one of, if not my favorite books in the Bible. It's one of the most well-known and historically significant pieces of literature of all time. Often just this book is picked out of the rest of the Bible and handed out to college students on campus. Why this one? Why this book? I guarantee that if you sat on your couch all day yesterday and today watching college and NFL football, you likely saw someone with a poster board that said John 3.16 behind the uprights, which might just be the most memorized verse in the Bible, at least till uh, my generation got a hold of the Bible and 21st century Americans made Matthew 7-1 their life verse. Anybody know it? Judge not lest you be judged, right? 
in the gospel according to John is some of the loftiest theology in the Bible. Some, so much of our clearest understanding of Jesus comes from this book, both in his humanity and his divinity. So much of our clearest understanding of the Trinity, one God of the same essence, but three distinct persons, co-eternal and co, um, having co-majesty with one another. All of these things come from or become very clear to us from this gospel some of our clearest understandings of the work of the Holy Spirit, the resurrection of the dead, heaven and eternity, the very transforming power of Christ himself comes from this gospel. So I couldn't be more excited over the next many months to behold Christ with you all as we walk through John, to be transformed by him, to love God, to love one another, to love our neighbor more as a result. Next week, our, our brother Stephen Morales, many of you know him, Many of you have never met him. We're, we're glad for you to be able to meet him. Well, he'll be joining us from Guatemala, and he won't be preaching from John. So we'll introduce this book this evening and then really dive in two Sundays from now. But before we dive in, I want to spend the majority of our first week here on some introductory and some structural things about this book. Maybe you'd wish that we'd just start plowing through chapter one. But I think in the long run, the next many months will be much more valuable and fruitful to us as a church and to you individually as you hopefully begin reading this book more devotionally uh, and regularly uh, in your free time. If we, get, if we first get our bearings and know where we're headed in this book, and Lord willing, tonight we'll, you'll have a greater context for what you're reading throughout these entire 21 chapters as you begin to read through this book this week. So first, who wrote it? Until about... 200 years ago, nearly everyone assumed and agreed that John, the son of Zebedee, one of Jesus's 12 disciples and part of the seemingly inner circle of Jesus's three, Peter, James, and John, that John was the author. Because of this, because this gospel account is so much different than Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and because it began to be assumed that the writer used language and some philosophic ideas that wouldn't have been around until maybe 100 or 200 or 300 years after when he, this first century, uh, many, if not most scholars over the past 200 years began believing that this was a later work by some guy, probably in the year two or 300. Therefore, if it was that late, then this book is completely unreliable for us to learn anything about what Jesus was actually like and what he actually taught. However, and here's some historical minutia for you, with the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls and some other early works of uh, copies on papyrus fragments from the first century that refer to and even quote directly from this gospel, an early first century date is probably, if not almost certain. And yet this skeptical uh, explanation still hangs on at a popular level, that this is an unreliable work that was probably two or three hundred years after Christ. You'll read about the untrustworthiness of John all over the comment sections of blogs. As, don't, don't make that mistake. Uh, here's, here's a pro tip. Don't read the comments. All right. Uh, You'll read about the untrustworthiness of John in the Da Vinci Code and all over the History Channel, but while there is still some debate among scholars that the author could be another eyewitness, 
This week, as I was just reading all of the history, all of the criticism, all of the multitude of options, I'm convinced that the person who wrote this is John, the son of Zebedee. And I just wasted three minutes telling you all of this, and Bible scholars have wasted 200 years. But what about it being so different than the other gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, and Luke? Matthew, Mark, and Luke are generally put together. These three are often referred to as the synoptic gospels. And John is most definitely not one of the synoptics. While there seems to be a growing case that John had most likely read Mark and probably Luke, he wanted to write his own gospel account based on his own perspective and his own unique audience. Contrary to the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, John doesn't include a Jesus birth story. We just read the very beginning. There's nothing about Mary and Joseph and Bethlehem and wise men and stuff, right? There's no genealogies to open the thing. None of Jesus' parables are in John. There's no temptation in the wilderness, no transfiguration, no Lord's Supper. On top of this, we do have large chunks of of teaching in John that aren't in the other Gospels and other big miracles. His teaching on being born again, the high priestly prayer. He turns water into wine at the wedding at Cana, which we'll see in chapter 2, that not in the synoptics. Raising Lazarus from the dead, not in the synoptics. So what do we say to this? Ought this chip away at our trust in the reliability of this book? Well, first of all, it would serve us well to remember perspective. If I asked four people to give me an account of the happenings of September 11th, 2001, And these four people that I asked were like a person on the third floor who escaped, a photographer on the other side of the Hudson, a tourist walking by on a street nearby, and then perhaps a journalist writing a recap story for the New Yorker two weeks later. These accounts would be very different. All would emphasize different parts of that morning and and the days that followed that they thought were important, perhaps leaving out other parts of the story that some included altogether. The photographer would have seen things on the other side of the river that the person in the third floor wouldn't have seen. The person in the building would have likely told you about the sights and the smells inside the building, how it affected her much more differently than the reporter who came in after the fact. And the point is that different accounts and different emphases don't make any more of the four 9-11 accounts more or less trustworthy or reliable, any less true. They just emphasize different things for different reasons. And the same is true for the gospel writers. They experienced Jesus' life and teaching in different ways, and they were likely writing without entirely identical purposes. And if John did write for a purpose, what is it? What is his purpose for writing this thing? He could have, if I'm convinced that he's aware of Mark and Luke before he wrote this thing, he could have just been satisfied to let those be the gospel accounts. What caused him to pick up a pen and start writing on a piece of papyrus? Well, John is anything but subtle. So nearing the end, he'll just flat out tell us why he decided to do it. Why he took time to write this whole thing. In chapter 20, Verses 30 and 31, he writes, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John has written this account as a work of evangelism. In fact, it may be Jewish non-believers in his new city of Ephesus that he has in mind as he's writing these things. 
And just as John wrote with the hope and expectation that many would read his account of Christ and believe, it's our hope and prayer that that would be the case here as well. Beginning in chapter 1 and then to the end of chapter 21 can help all of us, Christians and non-Christians alike, understand three things. Three things that John tells us in chapter 20. What it means that Jesus is the Christ. We talk about him as this quite often, right? What it means that he is the Christ, the Son of God. What it means to have life in his name. Not that we just believe certain things about him to be true, but then have life in him. And then what it means to rightly respond to these true things about Jesus. We're going to try to answer those three questions nearly every single week as we walk through this gospel account. So if you're new and visiting Christ Church, I think you've, I think you've come at a good time. Perhaps you've just moved to the city and you're looking for a church that, want, that you hope will show you Christ. Well, Lord willing, over the next many months together, we're going to do that a whole lot. Just behold him. Perhaps you're not a Christian. Perhaps you've always wanted to give Jesus a fair shake. Try to understand what the Bible says about him before dismissing him or the Bible altogether. So I would just ask, would you do that? Would you, would you study the Bible? Would you study John alongside with us and then just see what happens on the other side of it? What you come out on the other side believing about Jesus? And of course, we'll be praying for you that God would use this so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Perhaps you are a Christian, and you have people in your life who need to know Jesus. Would you invite them on Sunday evenings? Perhaps they can't or won't come on Sundays, but they might read this gospel account with you throughout the week. They might read a chapter with you each week, and then you could talk about it with them. Or at least they might be willing to listen to a two-minute recap of what your pastor told you on Sunday evening at the water cooler, or perhaps when you get home in the driveway. John is all about evangelism, so we will too. Let's use John's account to help us with our neighbors, with our coworkers, with our friends and our family. Okay, so let's look a little bit at the what and why. The what and why that John has arranged his account the way he has. We've already seen that he, in, in chapter 20, that he didn't choose to include everything that he saw Jesus do and everything that he heard him say. So why did he pick and choose the things that he did? Why did he arrange them in the order that he did? Many folks have tried to arrange John's structure in a lot of different ways, but I think it can be divided pretty cleanly in half. In, in chapter 16, verse 28, John records Jesus saying, I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and am going to the Father. So I think this reveals a good structure for us. The first half of John's account, chapters 1 through 10, are all about how Jesus, the Son, is now has come from his Father in heaven to reveal the Father to earth. The first half is about his coming, what he has come to do and why. And then chapters 11 through 21 are all about how Jesus, the Son, is now leaving the earth to return to his Father in heaven so that earth may join him in heaven. Coming in the first half, going in the second half. That's a pretty clean structure, and I think that's pretty good. John has arranged this thing to show that Jesus is God and the way to know the Father. And John structures his gospel account around specific things that Jesus did and taught. 
If you're familiar with John, you probably know the seven famous I am statements that Jesus makes about himself throughout the book. Jesus, throughout the book, says, I am the bread of life, the light of the world. I am the door or the gate for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine. We'll spend an entire Sunday on each of these seven statements. But in all of these things that Jesus says about himself, Jesus is making a very unique claim about who he is and about how you can know God through him. And parallel to all of these I am statements that we'll see Jesus teach are the so-called signs of Jesus that John chooses to show us. The synoptics call some of these things that Jesus does miracles. Matthew, Mark, and Luke talk about the miracles of Jesus. John calls them signs, and they really do act as road signs pointing us to a destination, like turn here, and then turn here, and then turn here, and then if you follow the signs, you will see clearly who Jesus is. And John will explicitly name six of these signs. He calls Jesus' turning water into wine a sign. And then he says a, a sign is a healing of a sick boy, and then a healing of a paralyzed man, and then the feeding of the 5,000, and then a healing of a blind man. And then the last sign that he explicitly shows us is raising Lazarus from the dead. But symmet sym symmetrically to the seven I am statements, the seventh sign that John shows us, he doesn't explicitly point out. And yet it's Jesus' greatest sign that shows clearly who he is in his resurrection, where Jesus proves himself to be God and giving his resurrection to all who would trust him, who would trust in his death on their behalf. So from the very, very beginning of this book, it unfolds like a Greek tragedy. The plot and teaching is moving forward toward its ultimate culmination, which is a bloody cross and the death of its hero, but then unlike a Greek tragedy, the hero is actually victorious in his death. He's victorious through his weakness, through his shame. The king is actually a servant. The teacher washes the feet of his students. The righteous dies for the unrighteous. There is life through death, irony throughout this gospel account. But again, this isn't just in a few random or disjointed moments in the book or even just the cross part at the end of the story. I read one guy say this week that the structure of literally every chapter in the Gospel of John goes like this. Here's the structure of each chapter. Jesus, I'm totally God. Crowd, no you're not. Jesus, yes I am. Crowd, prove it. Jesus, watch me die. And that's the structure of every chapter. And that's the structure of the entire book. It's a good summary. So if that's where we're headed for every chapter, Jesus saying that he's God by his death, the way that you know that I'm God is by the way that I will die and be raised to new life for you. Let's introduce chapter one then. We'll get through the first five verses tonight and then in two weeks we'll pick up any loose pieces from these first five verses and then get through verse 18. You heard Charles read it, but that was like forever ago. So let's read along again with me from John 1. By the way, if you don't own a Bible, uh, we've got several over here on this thin table. We'd love for you to grab one on your way out and just uh, maybe perhaps begin reading John with us. But for tonight, feel free to use one of the Bibles in front of you. Uh, the translation might be a little bit different 
uh, from our English Standard Version that we're using this evening. Uh, so read with me. The Gospel according to John, chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So with his very first words, John wants to draw our attention back to Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So this is in the beginning was the word. But he does so in a very strange way, doesn't he? He calls Jesus the word. Why does he do this? Why doesn't he just say, in the beginning was Jesus, and Jesus was with God, and Jesus was God? Why all the cryptic word stuff? Well, right off the bat, he wants us to begin to dive into the swirling mystery and the beauty of the triune God that he'll keep painting for us over the next 21 chapters. And throughout the Old Testament, God's word is an extremely important theme. God creates by his word, right? In Genesis 1, he speaks and then the cosmos are created. He creates by his word. He also reveals himself to humanity through his word. By his word, he delivers Israel from slavery in Egypt. And that same word enacts judgment on Egypt and other enemies, and then later on, even on unbelieving Israel. His word, as we see in like the prophetic and the poetic books, his word are his, is God's wisdom. It's a light for a dark world. In Ezekiel 37, God's word comes to this valley of dead and dry bones. God's word goes out over it and then brings life. God's word brings life. Now think about this for a second. What are your words? What are they? Are, are your words actually you? Like Andrew Ward speaks and then his words are somewhere out here. And then can I just like grab those and say, those are Andrew? Well, not really, right? He's over there. But they are, these words are distinct, and yet they are like a actual, they're a kind of embodiment of Andrew. They're an embodiment of his, of his mind, of his will, of his person. So I think we can say the same thing about what John is describing here about Jesus being the Word of God. We read that the Word of God or we read that the word of God, the creative, the revelatory, the saving, and yet judging the wise and life-giving word was distinct from God, right? It's distinct over here. It or he was with God, and it or he was at the same time divine himself. He was God. The word was with God. The word was God. So John is saying to his readers, Hey, you guys have heard about Jesus, right? Like he caused a pretty big stir a couple decades ago down in Judea. He got to be a pretty popular teacher. He had quite a following. He, he, you might have heard some of these bold claims that he made about himself, about reality. His claims were so bold and so offensive to our Jewish leadership and then to the Roman government that they executed him. They, they crucified him. And now you know, you've heard of this growing number of people all around the Mediterranean world who still follow him. But here's the deal. They're not claiming to just be following his teaching. They're not just claiming to be following his philosophy, his, his way of life. They're claiming to follow 
him, like presently follow him, because we're saying as Christians, he's alive. And not just that he's still alive, but he's God. He wasn't just some rural carpenter who happened to have some interesting thoughts on like children and the poor and world peace. He did have interesting things to say about all of those, but that's not his philosophy. He is the actual embodiment of God himself on earth. Jesus, the one who was born in a manger and taught by the Sea of Galilee, that guy in history, is the creative power of the sun and the moon and the billions of stars that we can see in the sky. This is not just some misunderstood rabbi who didn't have the forethought to just keep his mouth shut when he should have. He is God himself. That was a bold claim in John's day. That's a bold claim in our day. And I think it's good to just acknowledge the strangeness in everything that we just said. One of my seminary professors tells of a conversation he was having with some, this young activist, and she told him, I don't know anybody who believes the sort of things that you people believe about marriage and sex, and it sounds incredibly strange to me. And then his response was, yes, we believe even stranger things than that. We believe a previously dead man is going to show up in the sky on a horse. And that's true, right? We Christians actually believe that to be true. That's odd. And yet, we believe it to be true. And that's the kind of thing John is getting after in chapter 1, verse 1. Jesus is the Word, God himself, the creative means through which the Father has created the cosmos. But the creative God of the cosmos did not send disinterested in the world or in anger, total anger against the world, just biding his time to destroy it. No, God, the Word, came from heaven to bring light to a dark earth. And these are two comparisons that we'll continue to trace throughout the book of John, that of heaven and the world, and that of light and darkness. Just after the most famous John 3.16, we, we read John 3.17, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. John, in chapter 1, is saying that life and light has come. In the past, in history, has come, and yet the life that he had, he still has. So, Kristen, this is a good question for us. Considering everything that we just said about who Jesus is, the Word of God himself, God himself, the second person of the Trinity— do you believe that Jesus is actually eternal? That he was from the beginning? That when he lived on earth, his character was as it had always been? And that if that's true, then he remains the same today? That he's just as concerned today with calling people to follow him? That the Jesus that knew of the sin and the shame of the Samaritan woman in chapter 4 or the adulterous woman in chapter 8, he knew of these things and yet didn't condemn them but welcomed them to himself? That if he's still alive today, he's welcoming you and that he is actually able to offer you the grace that brings the very transformation of your life? 
That if he is able to offer himself in chapter 6 as the fulfillment and satisfaction of that which our appetites and our desires point, if he could offer himself to the people then, and he is still the same today, then he's still able to offer you the same fulfillment and meaning and satisfaction in life now? That if he is the same as when he was when after hearing the death of his friend Lazarus, he wept actual tears, like the second person of the Trinity, like saline water came out of his tear ducts because he was so moved in grief and in mourning and compassion for his friend, for the world itself. If he's the same today that he actually sees and that he actually hears the effects of the fall in your life as well, that he has compassion, that he has care for the difficult times in your life, for the seasons of loss, for the season of sickness or pain or struggle or even death, that he is not aloof from those things, but he enters in with the same sort of compassion as he did that day at Lazarus' tomb. But like he was able to call Lazarus from the grave, he is also today the very God of resurrection. Not in a kind of like, don't give up, think positive thoughts and you can do it kind of way, but in a you are dead and powerless kind of way. On your own, apart from his speaking words of power and grace in your life, we are dead in our trespasses and sins, and yet he still comes to speak life. Just as we'll see in Keene's baptism in a few moments, Jesus doesn't come to make bad people better. This is not what he's come to do. He has come to make dead people alive. And he invites these former dead people into the triune life of God that he describes for us in John 17, ultimately through his servant death on the cross to not wash our feet with a bowl of water, but to wash our souls with a body of blood. That he might then in his resurrection call us by intimate and personal name like he does with Mary in chapter 20 in the garden, revealing himself to her and to us as the Lord, the Christ, calling us by name to follow and believe. So I just ask, will you, will you study this Christ with us? Will you know him more clearly? And then will you worship Jesus with us as the second person of the Trinity, the word of God who was with God and was God from the very beginning and still remains to be the same today? The deeper we understand this gospel account, the more clearly we will understand Christ. The more clearly we will understand Christ, the more clearly we will understand ourselves and our greatest needs and longings as humans. And you may just come to find and agree with Augustine, who just a few centuries after Christ reflected to God, where he said, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it finds its rest in you. And I pray that you would find rest if you are already a Christian, that you would rest more deeply in knowing Christ. And if you're not a Christian, that you would rest perhaps for the first time in knowing Christ. Now before we move into our time of remembrance at the Lord's table and then rejoicing together in the new life that he's brought to our brother Keen, 
Let me pray for the next many months of our time together in John, using Jesus' high priestly prayer from chapter 17. I've obviously changed the pronouns in his prayer, but may this be your prayer for all of us as well for our next many months together in this gospel account. Father, I do not ask for these Christians here only, but also for those who will believe in Christ through these Christians' word, that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in Jesus, and he in you, that they also may be in the triune life, so that the world may believe that you have sent him. The glory that you have given Jesus, he has given to us, that we may be one, even as the Father and Son are one. Christ in us, and the Father in Christ, that we may become, we, we may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you have sent him and loved us, even as you loved the Son. Father, we desire that we also, whom you have given Jesus, may be with him where he is, to see his glory that you have given him because you loved him before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, he knows you, and we know that you have sent him. Jesus made known to us your name. And he will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved him may be in us and he in us. Sanctify us in the truth, Father, for Christ's sake. Amen. We hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ Church, visit www.christchurchabq.com.